If you've got your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to land there in just a few moments. Now, listen, you might have noticed, um, if you're visiting with us, you you probably didn't notice anything. Uh, You thought, well, that's just what we always do. But if if you're regular here, you realize, hey, we've got some... Uh, you know, big cardboard boxes that are that are stood up in the in the foyer, and we don't do things like this very often. But let me say a couple of things to kind of relieve some some tension. Every August, uh, we do um, a series where we talk about the church. We talk about vision. We talk about who we are and uh, what what we're called to as a church, why we're here, and we've built it around three things, growing communities and building leaders and living generously, and it's kind of a summary of our vision statement. And when we talk about growing communities, we're talking about a biblical community accomplishing biblical mission. When we talk about building leaders, we're talking about becoming like Christ and wanting to see others become like Christ, disciple-makers. And then when we talk about living generously, we're talking about having been transformed by the generosity of God's grace. And then so we want to be people who, who reflect that and, and demonstrate that, live out that generosity. And so we're going to dig in uh, this month on what it means to live generously. And the only difference uh, between this August and the ones that have come before us, so I'm going to ask you at the end of August to, for something tangible. I'm going to ask you uh, to respond tangibly. But I want to tell you a story first. I was telling a uh, group of folks I was with a couple of weeks ago, for, 40 years ago, something significant happened, and it happened right here in Tyler, Texas. And it was uh, 40 years ago, 37 people walked into the People's Bank building downtown in Tyler, um, went up the stairs around the banister to the room that has the big windows that look over the square. They Somebody brought a guitar, they played guitar, and uh, somebody opened God's Word and shared from God's Word, and they spent time praying. And 40 years ago, May the 30th, 1982, was the very first morning of Bethel Bible Church. 40 years ago. A group of people, 37 people, average age, 29 years old, had a conviction full of hopes expectant, you know, kind of big dreams in a small town. They thought that God was going to do something great. They, they believed that. They had a commitment to make Christ known in this community by clear and practical teaching of God's Word. And they were prayerful about it, expecting what God might do. If you went back to them and, you know, got to go back 40 years ago and say, hey, you won't believe this, but 40 years from now, This place will have exceeded, abundantly exceeded, all these hopes and expectations that you have. You you won't, if I told you now what it looked like, you wouldn't believe what it was going to be. And eight years ago, I remember we were here and uh, we had a, a group of people that were meeting downtown in the Liberty Theater and we said, hey, we believe God's called us to this multi site thing. We want to provide a place for the downtown to meet, which is now the foundry. You, you know uh, that building um, if you've ever been there. And we wanted to want, launch the White House campus. And so we 
with, with all this expectation and conviction, said, hey, God, we, we're going to ask the congregation to help us, and we did, and you did. And then here we are eight years later in not just three campuses, but five campuses, and, and spread out over East Texas and, and with dreams to continue to spread out where we're going to go. And I want you to know that these are things that God has done. And I'm, I'm going to show you that in just a minute. There are things that we know about, and then there are things we don't know about. And I want to show you how those things intersect here in just a little bit. You know, the Bible, it has these significant things. You look at Scripture, God has always um, done this. And, and there are these markers in scriptures. And, and one of those markers is a 40-year marker in the Old Testament. And in this 40 years, you got the 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness, 40 years of David's reign. You have Jesus in the New Testament who will spend 40 days in the wilderness in temptation. And, and you're meant to think that temptation, you're meant to go back to the wilderness. And that wilderness times remembered a couple of ways in the Bible. One of them's like Psalm 95 where God reminds us, remember when I loathed you, you were so disobedient and idolatrous? But far and away more often, that 40 years is remembered like it is in Exodus chapter 16, verse 35. It says, the people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. This impossible and unsurvivable wilderness, and yet every day they woke up and provision was there. There wasn't a single day God's going to say that I didn't provide for you all the way to the finish line. Deuteronomy 2.7, as they're remembering what God's done, Deuteronomy's to the, to the nation that's about to go into the promised land, and they're remembering how God has kept them this 40 years for the Lord your God's blessed you in all the work of your hands. Knows you're going through this wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Every step of the way, and you've lacked nothing. Same thing here. Just a great moment to remember that this last 40, we've lacked nothing. I want to show you that God's done exceedingly, abundantly more than we could have asked or imagined. And I think here on the threshold of 40 years, we look forward, and he's about to do that all over again. So if you're in Ephesians chapter 3, I want you to look with me, beginning in verse 14. I'm just going to read this prayer. It's, it's one of Paul's beautiful prayers. He's got two prayers in, F, uh, in his letter to the Ephesians. Prayer in Philippians, prayer in Colossians. This is what Paul says in this one. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly 
and all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul, he begins, he bows his knee before the Father. For this reason, but Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose. That's what he's been talking about up to this point in the letter to the Ephesians. He'd spent three years with them. He knew them. He had been their pastor, and he wanted this, this uh, he desired this for them. He wanted something for them. And so he goes to his knees before God, this, this posture of, of bowing his knees. It's a sign of humility, utmost humility. See, when we grasp or we catch a glimpse of God's sovereign plan, the redemption, reconciliation, we catch a glimpse of what God's been doing from eternity past up until our life today, Humility is the only response. Solomon prayed on his knees. Ezra, the psalmists, Daniel, all prayed on their knees. When the disciples came to Jesus, Stephen, Peter, all these men, they, 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 they fall to their knees. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night when he was betrayed, fell on his face and prayed. It's like a rehearsal for eternity to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul's meaning in verse 15 is, is that, that God, who, who's our Father, He's the Creator. He, he's the Father of all that He's created. The, the naming of every family, of every person. This is not something God did in the past and lost track of something that he's continuing to do today. And then quickly look at the end of verse 16, or beginning of verse 16. It's according to the riches of his glory, not out of his wealth, not out of his riches, but according to his wealth. Then not out of it, but according to it, in measure with it. Well, what's the context, uh, content of his wealth? Well, here it's, it's glory. He's talking about the sum total of all his attributes majesty and splendor and radiance, all that overwhelms you. Paul's praying to be granted, this request that he's going to pray would be granted according to the wealth of, of the fullness, the completeness of God. Riches always used to describe the wealth of God. You've this wealth that can't be measured, Romans 2, 4, the, the riches of his kindness. You have the riches of his glory. You have the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, the, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, which that's a whole thing in Ephesians. The unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of full assurance, and it help us think about praying just exactly what can we pray for. And Paul starts with, who are you praying to? The limit of our prayer begins by not having a view of a limitless God. If God's limitless, then our prayers have to be limitless. We don't have to put boundaries on those prayers. 
where there's no boundaries. We can literally, Paul's going to say, we can literally outpray our imaginations. That's what Paul's going to say. Now, here's what he prays for. Four things to, well, one thing, and out of the first thing, three other things flow. But look, look at this. Uh, in verse 16, Paul's going to pray that the Spirit will strengthen their inner beings. And I just want you to see this real quick. According to the riches, he says, of the glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. That the uttermost power of God would work in our innermost being. Think about that. The uttermost power of God at work in our innermost being. That's what he's praying for. Strengthened with power. Two power words here. It's the unlimited resource of God's majestic might. has nothing to do with our power. Everything to do with his power. It's an inside strength, an inner strength. Something going on in the depths of us that that would get drawn to the surface in our life. Then he's going to pray that Christ would be more at home in our life and that we'd grasp the full dimensions of God's love. That's what he means in verses 17 through 19. The uttermost power of God working in our innermost being that would result in Christ dwelling at home in our heart for the purpose of comprehending the love of Christ being filled with the fullness of God. When he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, literally means to settle down, to feel at home, permanent dwelling. It's two words to talk about residing in the New Testament. One of them means to be a visitor or stranger, a peroikio is what that word is. A kata oikio, that's an that's a owner, that's a permanent dwelling. I'll give you an example. When Leslie and I got married and we began to live together, she, she was to me and I was to her kata oikio. We were permanent dwellers in the house, Okay? Um, that does not apply to my in-laws. They are para-oikio. They are visitors. When they come, I remember when, I told the story, I remember when Jay was born. It was the year 2000. I was in seminary. And we had this tiny little house, and I'd gotten the house already. Leslie was about to come home with Jay, and also, and, her, and her parents showed up, and we're so glad to have her parents there, but I, they had all this luggage, and I didn't want the luggage to mess up the, the, the coming home to, you know, the clean house. So, I took their, I said, I'll, I'll get your bags, and I took them, and I put all their bags in the garage. So, it turns out, as good idea as I thought that was at the time, that wasn't a good idea, but it did communicate your paraoikio, para all right? You, you're just here for a visit. We're bringing Jay in as kataoikio. I'd say this. Too many 
believers. Too many. Christ isn't at home in your heart. He's a visitor. You know, maybe, maybe you've let him Airbnb your garage apartment, you know? You come in and use the kitchen now and then. But he's not at home. But positionally, you're a citizen of the kingdom. Experientially, you're keeping Christ at bay in your life. And Paul's praying, listen, I, I'm, I'm praying with all the strength of God, all his might, that you'd know you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then, then he's going to pray so that you can comprehend what is beyond your ability to comprehend, that you would know what is beyond your intellectual grasp, that you would be filled what would, what would beyond whatever could be measured. That's what he's going to pray. That you may comprehend and know the love of Christ. A supernatural strength would come from God combined with the strength of other saints in our life, that's what it means, together with all the saints. We can't even do this alone. It's more than any one of us has the capacity to do. And so the strength of God would come, work its way into our lives and with each other, and that we'd be able to comprehend, we'd be able to seize and take hold of what can't fully be grasped, but that we would begin to grasp it. To be transformed, to comprehend what it is the love of God. And he, and he gives us these measurements, breadth and length and height and depth. So you, you could set off in any direction, north or south or east or west, and walk to the end of eternity, you'd never get to the end of it. It is love, boundless, measureless, fathomless, bottomless. That's what Paul's praying for beyond the comprehension of humanity to know how much God has loved. If you're sitting here this morning, just by the way, you think, you know, I don't know if God could love me. I I'm telling you, it's not a matter of if God loves you. The reality is He loves you. Oh, oh, He loves you. He loves you beyond what you could possibly comprehend. You don't have to wonder if he loves you. The Bible invites you to dream and imagine how much he loves you. And you're so safe to do that because you could never imagine to the degree. You couldn't conceive of it. You couldn't think of it. It's beyond your ability to even calculate his love for you. That's what he's saying. It's piling words on where language fails. And then he says that you might be filled with the fullness of God's poetic way to write. All his attributes poured out into all of your life. It's this idea of being fully consumed. He says, imagine a giant pitcher, and it's filled to the top, and then 
Imagine a small glass, even a shot glass. And that tiny glass being able to hold all the water from the pitcher, that's what he's praying for. All the fullness. A couple of things I want to say before I get to the last two verses. God's love can't be measured, fully explained, even fully comprehended, but it can be experienced. And God wants you to experience something more profound than you can even explain. Exceedingly, abundantly more than you could possibly expect is His love for you. You'd be filled. And God doesn't want to just do something out there. He wants to do something in you. And this is such great news because our nature is to be, listen, my, my natural man, your natural man, your natural woman is to be filled with all kinds of things like filled with yourself and filled with bitterness and envy and hate and doubt and anxiety and even evil. Paul prays what Jesus desires and that is that he'd replace all of that and the fullness of him would take its place. And he wants to hold nothing back in you. That same power that provided for the Israelites every day in the wilderness. The power that created the universe. The power that raised Christ from the dead. It now dwells in you. And this is the true generosity of God. He doesn't want to just give you some stuff. He wants to give you all of himself. His ultimate provision for you. So Paul's desire all this inner work would be drawn to the surface of a believer's life and what's seen in our life would more and more and more align with the things that are unseen. The power of God would draw from the depths of our being to the surface of our everyday life so that more and more we would experience who we truly are in Christ. And it's as though Paul doesn't know, I mean, he's, he, he's praying this prayer and this, you know, he starts on his knees in this act of humility and this great ask, this, this ask beyond ask, this, this amazing, unbelievable, uncomprehendable, the things that he's asking for. And Paul just, there's nowhere else to go except for worship. It's the doxology of this prayer is what it's called. The last two verses, 20 and 21, I told you that Sunday morning 40 years ago, there were two things happening. You had a group of people that gathered. They had a conviction full of hopes, expectant, you know, to, to make Christ known by the clear teaching of God's Word. And they were prayerful and expectant of what God might do. And they, they knew all of those things. The thing they didn't fully understand was what Paul describes in this Verses of phrase. Look at it again. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you meant to come to the end of verse 19. You might be saying, well, how is this going to happen? 
All these things Paul prays for. How, how can all of this happen? And the, the constant refrain of the Bible, nothing is impossible with God. And so Paul begins to praise. God's immeasurable. It's beyond our imagination, and that's how he works. He works in immeasurable ways beyond what we can imagine. You know what totally shocks me about this? The God to whom Paul is praying to, on behalf of the Ephesians, on behalf of all the believers that would come after, that God has the capacity to meet these needs. The capacity to meet the needs exceeds the capacity of our asking. Uh, God has more ability, power, capacity than we have the ability to ask. How much more? That's why Paul's he's on far more abundantly, more beyond. We run out of adjectives to talk about his ability. It's a more that never ends. This is the picture the Bible gives us even of eternity. Day one, we see him in all is full of his glory. Day two, there will be more. Day one, there's absolute perfection. Day two, there's more perfection. And it doesn't make sense. It's more and more and more and more. And when God hasn't done what you've wanted, you know, or what you expected, the Bible invites us to stop and to think, well, maybe God isn't doing less than what I expect. Maybe he's doing more. Give you a couple of illustrations. One, one, think about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It's hot. They need water. The, the snakes biting them. It, they bicker. They, they decide they want to go back to Egypt. The best they can hope for is one day to get to Canaan. Eventually, they'll be able to keep the law. That's the best case for them. That doesn't happen. That, that generation never makes it. No generation ever kept the law. But let me ask you, as you look back, was God doing more or was he doing less? The answer is he was doing exceedingly, abundantly more. He was preparing the earth for the coming of his son. Or Paul. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. In fact, he tells them just before this prayer, don't, don't, don't be discouraged by my suffering. He was imprisoned at the time. That they'll never see him again. Eventually, Paul ends up getting killed. The reality is Ephesus doesn't even exist anymore, but God wasn't doing less than they expected. He was doing more, abundantly more. So Paul had no idea we'd be sitting here this morning. Didn't, didn't even know this place existed on a map. Yet here we sit, and we're reading Paul's words. How many people have been brought to faith Believers strengthened and encouraged by these words. In heaven right now, Paul's just wake up in heaven if you wake up, if you sleep. I don't know. God, you didn't get me out of prison. You, you 
didn't end my suffering. You didn't fix all my problems. You didn't make me rich. But you did exceedingly abundantly more than that. So he says, therefore, to him be the glory. For all generations, forever and ever. What it means is God's working in your life far more than just your life. There's a bigger story. You're part of something that does not end. And the praise and the glory for all that's reserved for God. And His generosity towards us that He wants to fill us with and then spread that through us. And then He says, Amen. And it doesn't just mean now it's time to eat. It's this invitation to agree with it, to, to respond to it. Paul's asking the church to respond for all generations, giving glory to God. What would it look like to pray for more of God's glory? He prayed for more than just to be released from prison, but to, but to use my imprisonment for your glory. We might apply it this way. I don't know what to think about this. Father, would you do more than I think? I'm praying for more than just the healing of my sickness, but would you use my sickness? Pray for more than just giving my children a comfortable life. Would you give them a higher purpose? More than make me happy, would you make me holy? More, more than free me from my circumstances, would you fill me with your presence? More than just be part of my story, Father, would you use me for your glory? See, our problem is not that we want too much, it's that we want too little. We expect too little, we desire too little. That we would calibrate an, an expectation, a desire that God would fill us beyond imagination. We would experience the love of Christ beyond what we could imagine. Trusting that what Paul prays for here is exactly what's happening in our life, that the power of God is at work. So, in light of that, let me, let me take a couple of minutes. I, I want to share about the initiative that starts today. You can relax. I'm not going to ask you for anything today. It's a 40-year threshold. So we stand at this crossroads a little bit. We can look back and see all that God's done, all that God has exceedingly abundantly done, and we can look forward and we can trust God again for that next generation. Some of you go, well, I haven't been here for 40 years. I can tell you, I hadn't either. May 30th of 1982, I was, in the, I was 11 years old in Abilene, Texas in the fifth grade. Miss Stubberfield was my Sunday school teacher. And I'm telling you, if you went back those 28, 29-year-olds and you said, hey, I know who your pastor's going to be a few years from now, and, and transported them to Abilene, you know, for a field trip, they'd have quit. 
You know, or my Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Stubbefield, you know, if she was like raised from, I told this group, she was raised from the dead all over again, you know, like resuscitated, like a Lazarus kind of deal, not a Jesus deal. You brought her here and she saw, this kid who was in your Sunday, he's the pastor, she'd die all over again right there. I wasn't here 40 years ago, but I'm telling you, God, God knew I would be here now. It's ordained my steps. It's ordained your steps. He's put us all together for this moment. In Deuteronomy and Exodus, what's happening is Moses is sending out a next group in light of their past, reminding them of what God's done, the provision, as they look ahead to the next we feel this urgency. Listen, I, I'll tell you more about it next week, but this community is about to experience growth, Tyler, Smith County, growth like we've never seen in 50 years. Exponential, rapid, uncomfortable growth. People coming in from all over the country into this area. you already seeing the beginnings of it. And it's projected to happen at a rate that we have never seen before. And so when we talk about generosity this month, it, listen, I'm talking about more than money. It, certainly it includes money. Many people don't like to talk about money in the church. The feeling is mutual, I assure you. But here's the reality of it. Jesus taught about more money more than he did any other topic that we would consider. He had more to say about money than heaven and hell combined. Said things like, where your treasure is, there your heart is. He knew that the one thing that competed the most for the place of his dwelling at home in your heart, you know what it is? It's money. We know that. It's the thing that's taboo for us. Listen, I've, I've been in men's groups where guys will confess some of the craziest things I've ever heard to each other. But if you were to say to a guy that's just been vulnerable in ways you can't imagine, hey, by the way, let me see your checkbook. Well, that would have crossed the line. Jesus knows that what we do with our money competes for our affection with Him. How we spend our money, what we do with it, how we view it, what we think about it. Jesus indicates where our heart really is and where our kingdom lies. parable of the rich young ruler. We'll look at that. It's a tragedy. Here's the Bible. It's clear. Giving is not a financial issue. It's a spiritual issue. So, we got to talk about it. And we will. We will over the next few weeks. And I want to ask you, come back. I mean, I know what it is. You're thinking, oh man, I'm taking August off. But I would encourage you not to. In fact, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. The average person comes to church one to two times a month. Isn't that? 
you think, oh, that's not me. And then you look back at your calendar and you realize, oh, gosh, that probably is me. Here's what I want to ask you. I want to ask you to make a priority to be here in August. Every Sunday that you can. If you're traveling one of the weekend, if there's a way for you to adjust your schedule to come back early on Sunday morning, would you come and be with this church family on Sunday morning in the Sundays of August? And then would you pray? Say, God, would you overwhelm me? Would you exceed all my expectations about this topic? Because I don't really want to hear about it. I get the feeling my pastor doesn't really want to talk about it. But would you exceed my expectations? Would, would you lead me? Would I be able to hear from you in ways I have never heard from you before? Because I'm telling you, there's not growth in sanctification that does not lead. That road always leads right through the heart of how you think and what you do with your money. There's a booklet this morning. If you didn't get one, would you, would you grab one and take it home? I'm going to walk you through it next week. You can peruse it when you're at home. It tells you what we're going to do. We're going to raise $6 million, by the way. I don't want to bury the lead. But that's what we're asking for. I'll tell you about what those things will go to next week. But I want to say this. Keep the right priority. Our secondary goal, let me say it that way. Let me start there. Our secondary goal is that God would provide us resources to do the things that we feel that God's called us to. That it called us to and, and, and resources that would begin this next 40 years of exceedingly abundantly more than we could even imagine. But that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is that we would experience a paradigm change. And I don't mean as a church, although maybe I do, but I'm talking about you, I'm talking about me. Because here's what I know. Even if you write a check, even if you write a big check, but nothing's happened inside here, in the, in the midst of the inner person where the mighty work of God would happen. If you're not changed, you write a check, but you're not changed, you've done it wrong. So the primary goal is that we would be drawn to Christ. He would be more at home in our hearts. We would experience in real ways tangibly the incomprehensible love of Christ. Listen, God doesn't need your money. Doesn't need it at all. And if nothing comes in over the next four weeks, which that would be sad. I can tell you this, we're not going to stop trusting Him. I'm not going to believe that we should expect less about what it is that he's going to do. I fully anticipate him doing abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And we'll keep serving and we'll keep loving and keep worshiping like we've always done. Because I want to do something more than raise money. I want to raise up and send out a group of 
people, believers, disciples, generous, filled with the fullness of God, overflowing love to the world. Generosity that fills our homes with life groups, fills our children's ministry with children and adults who love them. Every week, have the opportunity to tell them about who Christ is, that these myriads of people that are coming into this community, I'll tell you more about it next week, would find a place that they could call home, believing that God even now is preparing them to be part of this fellowship, and they don't even know where Tyler, Texas is on a map, but He does. You know, I'll close this way. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Isaiah chapter 55. And it comes after, you know, so God for a lot of chapters, 39 chapters, he's hammering Israel. You've been unfaithful to me, and judgment's coming. And in Isaiah, we've got these hard things to have to tell the nation of Israel. And the 39 chapters are hard reading, the first 39. And then in chapter 40, all of a sudden, the mood changes. In fact, some people believe that that Isaiah didn't even write the second half, the mood's so different, because it begins with comfort. And then God begins to say, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not completely done with you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to do things you can't even imagine. And in 52 and 53, he tells us about the servant who will suffer for us. And then by the time you get to chapter 55 of Isaiah, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, it's as though God speaking through Isaiah can't even contain the excitement anymore. And he yells, there's exclamation points in the text, and they're rightly there. Come, he says. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why would you spend your money on things that aren't bread? things that don't satisfy your thirst. We've gotten to do that for 40 years as a church. We'll continue to do it. Come, we'll yell. God goes on and he makes a great statement in the middle, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. We're reminded that's right. Your ways are exceedingly abundantly more. Your thoughts are exceedingly abundantly more than what we could imagine. And then God says this, This is what I'm going to do. This is how the people will come. This is how they will find their hunger satisfied and their... This is how they will will encounter when they're thirsty. For, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed and sower and bread to the eater... God says it's a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It will succeed for that which I sent it. And we say, well, what's the thing you're sending your word out 
to succeed in and to accomplish. And then he says this, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. This is when my word goes out. My word will go out, and instead of the the thorn will come up a cypress. Instead of a briar, will come up a myrtle. I grew up in West Texas. We have tumbleweeds out there. Telling some people last week, I said, you know what happens when you take a tumbleweed and you, you grab a tumbleweed, it's rolling down the highway, you grab it, put, put it, you dig a hole and you put it in the ground. And you make sure it has good soil around it. And then you, then you fertilize it and you, you, put water, you give it water and you make sure it has enough sunlight. Do you know what happens in the next six or eight weeks? Nothing. They're dead. The tumbleweed's completely dead, and it doesn't matter what kind of soil or fertilizer you use. Dead things don't grow. But here's what God says. My word, here's what my word does. It takes thorns which are dead and makes them cypress. It takes thistles which are tumbleweeds, and up comes myrtles. Things that are ever dead become alive. And there are people all in this community and people moving to this community that are trying to plant themselves in any kind of soil that they think they can grow in. And for 40 years, this place has been faithful over 2,000 Sundays, as it turns out, to proclaim God's Word, invite people to come, because God says, here's what happens Here's what happens when I send my word. Things that are dead come to life. And we've seen it over and over and over again. Inviting those to come in and to plant themselves in the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I look forward to the next 40 years to do that with you. For as long as I'm here, can be. And I'm going to invite you to join us to do that together. So, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get out of here, and we will um, come back next week. Don't forget. Bring somebody with you. Say, well, I, this, boy, this would be a weird time to bring somebody to church. I don't think it is at all. Bring them. We want them to hear. Father, thanks for all that you have done. And fathers, with great confidence, without shame, we have great expectation for what you will do. Father, for these next weeks, would you work in our hearts and our minds by your Spirit to the power of your Word, drawing us to your Son, that we would experience more and more, more and more, the incomprehensible love of your Son, Jesus. We pray all this in his name and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you would, stand with me. We'll be...